Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Poplar Tapes. This is a podcast where we host conversations about the intersections of philosophy and politics. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish, and today I will be joined by my friends Alex Edwards and Alex Bose, and we're going to be discussing environmental racism in the pro-pipeline movement in Canada. And this has been in the news a bit recently um, because of a convoy, a truck convoy to Ottawa that uh, was supposedly like going to be this big <clears throat> movement of working class Canadians who were driving to Ottawa to protest the attitude of the government towards uh, pipeline construction. But um, it was really played up in the media compared to what actually took place, where it was supposed to be like 200 trucks or something, and the reality was like much smaller. And so they shut down downtown Ottawa, but uh, expecting mm-hmm. it to be this big shit show, but instead it was something of a ghost town, right? Uh, and <laughs> yeah. Alex, you're in Ottawa, so you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, mm-hmm. more or less. I mean, it was nowhere near what it was supposed to be. Yeah, or what they anticipated. So, which kind of leads me to believe that uh, it's largely like a media narrative that is being played out here. And uh, I'm really interested in that. So I wanted to take a look at this media narrative. Um, it's, It's clear that there's kind of a battle in Canadian society about the place of extractive industry and uh, the future of the Canadian economy and so on. Uh, and the place of pipelines within that, right? Um, But the narrative that's being spun by politicians and uh, the media in Canada is something like this. Uh, On the one hand, there are working class Canadians who work in and around the oil and gas industry who feel excluded from Ottawa's decision making when it comes to large scale oil infrastructure projects. And they want to see Ottawa demonstrate the political will to restore their jobs and their communities. But on the other hand, unfortunately, these good faith citizens are not the only ones concerned about pipelines and their movements are being co-opted by racist elements who oppose immigration to Canada. Um, And so, yeah, reporting on this issue has drawn this really clear distinction between uh, the legitimate concerns around jobs and energy infrastructure versus the bizarre conspiracy theories about globalism and the UN, which are kind of highly racialized. Um, So the CBC reported on February 19th that the Natural Resources Minister Emarjit Sohi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, said about the convoy that it's, quote, unfortunate the movement was co-opted by other ideas, end quote. And this kind of led me to ask, is the movement being co-opted? Where did these other ideas come from, right? Like ideas don't emerge in a vacuum. And uh, they tend to attach themselves to the material conditions where they can most fruitfully take root. So my argument is really that uh, that media narrative works to occlude the constitutive racism involved in supporting the construction of pipelines uh, in the first place. Yeah, so to understand this argument, we really need to understand environmental racism. 
And so I hope we can talk about this a little bit, uh, which is a term. So yeah, environmental racism is a term that people use uh, to describe the fact that a disproportionate number of people who uh, live in hazardous environments um, are people from minority groups and people of low socioeconomic status, right? The distribution of environmental hazards as they're generated falls with much greater frequency uh, onto uh, the marginalized and economically destitute populations, right? And this, uh, this unequal distribution of environmental hazard is like highly racialized. So there are studies that show that race, more than any other factor, determines the likelihood of living living in close proximity to environmental hazards. Yeah, and yeah. I mean in the in Canada, that's like it kind of most obviously demonstrated by um, the lack of uh, fresh water on indigenous communities around Canada, right? Which is yeah. a systematic problem where it's all around this country where fresh water mm-hmm. is abundant and settler populations and uh, uh, cities and so on, by and large, like we have clean potable drinking water. Yeah, can so I, there's can this I jump really in like clear divide. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Add, add something to this uh, discussion. I think that, <clears throat> I think the point that you're making is really important and it's uh it's really easy for people to think about racism uh, in a very narrow way because you're bringing up uh, more of uh, the material, like material ways. It's kind of racism in a, in a material sense, right? It's in, in terms of resources. It's in terms of uh, damage uh, and violence uh, that's carried out, not only, not only in terms of um, resources, but also... Uh, like geography and like the places that uh, in like location, right? So it's all it's also about the way that uh, people are kind of uh, uh, organized in space as well. It's like to- yeah, topographical absolutely. or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You'd say it's like a subspecies of structural racism, mm-hmm. right? Like this has nothing to do with the way people feel in their hearts yeah. towards. People with different colored skin or anything like that, and everything to do with the way that our society is literally materially constructed in the world, and the way yeah, that it exactly. takes shape, and the way that it treats different communities of people, right? Um, so it's that more kind of robust uh, academic definition of racism rather than the kind of more colloquial definition where it might be like a, a, a racial prejudice. Uh, yeah. Something like yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, someone's particular disposition, you know, and or any number of actions, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those might come into play, but there's not the kind of motivator here. So, when it comes to major pipeline projects in Canada, especially, this is really obvious. But we've also seen this playing out in the United States as well, where Indigenous people disproportionately suffer the effects of the extreme environmental degradation represented by oil infrastructure projects like pipelines, right? Um, uh, this is like very clear right now in uh, so-called uh, British Columbia, but you think of a couple years back, Standing Rock, you know, where again, there's a construction of a pipeline over indigenous land without consent. It's going to be hugely... Uh, uh, destructive on the environment and the people who are living there are 
primarily going to suffer the effects of that, right? Um, and there's so it's a trend that we see a lot, but that is really like flaring up right now in uh, Western Canada. Um, but there's another side to this beyond just that environmental degradation. Um, the construction of these pipelines also creates and reproduces the social conditions which allow for sharp uh, increases in racialized violence. And I find this element of it actually especially disturbing. Um, you know, it, like in Canada today, we have this ongoing inquiry into um, missing and murdered Indigenous women who are like murdered at a significantly higher rate than other women. And the construction of pipelines and the labor conditions that attend uh, those that construction risks uh, subjecting even more women and girls to this kind of violence. Uh, you know, even as a, as a society, we're trying to have this conversation about how we can like prevent that and do better and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, 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 maybe we can have something to say about this. Uh, the Unistotin. Yeah. Um, have on their website an open letter called uh, the Unistoten Do Not Consent to Man Camps Increasing Violence Against Women. And I'm just going to read this quote to you guys. Um, so man camps are temporary housing facilities for up to thousands of mostly non-Indigenous male workers brought into different Indigenous communities for industrial work. They create the social conditions for an increase of violence against indigenous women and children. Uh, the culture and work conditions of man camps exacerbate isolation, drug and alcohol abuse, violence, misogyny, hypermasculinity, and racism among the men living there. Uh, end quote. Yeah, I, that is just like really dark stuff to read. Yeah, no doubt. No fucking kidding. In the words of Brett O'Shea, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, but I do think that this is probably a really overlooked element of this whole debacle, right? Where those jobs, which are kind of the prime motivator that people want, or the prime justification for building the pipelines and expanding oil infrastructure, like those jobs create those conditions, the conditions of the man camps where people are you know, migrant workers separated from their normal family life and so on. And uh, they are violent towards the women and the children who live around there. You know, that it creates that culture. And so when people want to defend those jobs, like it's not some abstract idea of just like economic growth, right? Like this is the material conditions that they're talking about generating. Um, and so I think that if you believe that that is somehow like racially neutral or civilizationally neutral um a, a just like a form of economic expansion uh you know you're really deluding yourself uh these jobs come along with social and material conditions which reinforce these racial hierarchies and that is at bottom why supporting construct the construction of pipelines is so kind of deeply racist already, even before this conspiracy theory stuff comes into play. That's right. And I think if I can just add something here, and I'm, I would like to discuss this more generally maybe, but um, I think a, a big problem with, as, as you've been saying, the, the media 
let's say, portrayal of this, uh, you know, oil caravan, whatever you want to call it, um, is this kind of classic false false dichotomy, right? Where, Mm -hmm. which is really part of the larger struggle of the environmental movement right now. Uh, But, you know, this notion that, you know, either we support workers, uh, which means that we have to support a fossil fuel-based energy system for our economy, uh, you know, and that essentially, (laughs) you know, uh, just to be clear, you know, the alternative that's being articulated to this today is in the form of what a lot of people call the Green New Deal, right? And a crucial aspect of whatever that means is that it involves this, the what's called the just transition, right? And what does it mean to have a just, a just transition for workers, including workers who are right now in the, you know, fossil fuel industry, let's call it, um, and, and, you know, what would it mean to have to transition to a renewable, uh, not clean energy, but renewable <laughs> uh, based, you know, energy economy uh, without simply leaving behind, uh, you know, portions of the working class, and, you know, um, and perhaps that's a very general way of putting uh, of putting the problem. But, you know. No, I think that that is the problem. I think what's important sure. is this fault this false dichotomy, I think. That's kind of behind a lot of the the portrayal of the yeah, of the situation. Yeah, and I think that um that it that shows you how like racialized the idea of the working class becomes. If that no is doubt. the dichotomy you're setting up, right? Because if it's like either we support the working Precise. class and oil, or you abandon the working exactly. class, that it it tells you that implicit in working class is yeah. this racial hierarchy that you're you're setting up. Because yeah. I mean, clearly that excludes the indigenous people who um, are going to suffer as a result That's of the right. construction of those pipelines, right? And as you've said, materially speaking, I mean, just because you're not conscious of it, uh, you know, it's not a question of whether it's your intention or not. It's a question of what are the material consequences of these decisions. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Definitely. So another, another thing to keep in mind, uh, when we're thinking about the relationship between, kind of uh, racism, like environmental racism, but I guess in in a way industrial and economic racism, I guess you could call it, uh, is, and then link it back into the history of Canada and its relationship with indigenous peoples. There's this very, very close relationship between the Canadian state and the economy. Uh, that is to say that capitalism and the economy have historically played a significant role in colonialism and uh, 
colonial violence against indigenous peoples. And uh, one of the earliest constitutional documents in Canadian history, uh, which is kind of a hybrid of a constitutional document and a corporate document, uh, is the Hudson's Bay Charter, or uh, also known as the Royal Charter, and it was granted by King Charles II in 1670, and it basically grants the um, uh, the governor and uh, the workers for the Hudson's Bay Company the right to um, basically take the resources and uh, go to war with uh, non-Christian um, non-Christian peoples and uh, any other princes uh, that you know uh, are an enemy. So I mean, there's yeah. this uh, there's this very very close relationship between economics and racism and uh, and uh, colonial colonial powers, right? And yeah, uh, I think. Uh, you might even want to say that's the primary driver, especially in the Canadian context, right? Is yeah, yeah. These kind of extractive industries have always been the foundation of anything like a Canadian state. Um, and I think, no, that's really well put at making the connection to the husband, Hudson's Bay Company, where it's like originally the reason these settlements exist, which like go on to become what we today call Canada was such that people could live there in order to extract resources from this land, you know, yeah, yeah. having no interest in the people who actually live on this land. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It's just a very like cynical relationship to land mm. that, mm. Uh, to the exclusion of the people who actually live there. And like mm. this, what we're talking about now with the uh, pipeline construction, you can see the way that this is a direct like inheritor of that, colonial history look at uh what happened back in january right where the rcmp like went in and raided and dismantled the uh, wet'suwet'en camps yeah. uh, and they arrested and you know actually imprisoned the people who were there and they were supposedly right enforcing this court injunction mm-hmm. but that land is unceded land you know yeah the, there's no treaty that the Canadian government has with the people who live, the Wet'suwet'en people and or the Unistoten people, right? Like, they have no legal basis to actually enforce that injunction. Like, it is right. nothing but uh, this violent takeover of territory for the sake of resource extraction. That's right. You know? Um, explicit. It's, it's explicit, yeah. I might like to add one more thing uh, in relation to... <clears throat> Uh, what Alex was saying in regards to the the dichotomy and just the the heavy f- focus on uh, the working class or really the job factor. That's right. We can also look at the situation and say, what are they talking about? I mean, how many how many jobs are we talking about here? And you know, from an from a business perspective, how logical is is this whole pipeline project in the first place i mean we spent billions of dollars on this thing and (laughs) (laughs) and uh and apparently i i i keep seeing different figures but you know i've 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 heard either 30 or 90 permanent jobs will be created and uh you know maybe thousands of 
temporary jobs. Temporary. But yeah, uh, on the uh, on the Unistoten website, they said thirty five hundred okay. uh, temporary yeah. jobs and thirty five permanent jobs. <laughs> there you go, thirty five <laughs> permanent jobs. Yeah, and and, and all of the all of that money, you know, and then also the fact that a pipeline is being built uh, is it's it's a ter- a form of transportation infrastructure, right? So it's going to replace other transportation infrastructure for oil, I presume. Uh, once the pipeline's built, oil won't be transported on um, trains or, or trucks, probably, or less will be tra- uh, transported. Although it depends on, I guess, the product output or whatever, how many barrels, perhaps. The point is that uh, a lot of transportation jobs could probably be lost, and the, the risks on, uh, for environmental damage are still high, whether it's the trucks, the trains, or the the pipeline, and so there are also costs in that regard, right? There's always these, you know, externalities or whatever economists yeah. like to call them, but I just yeah. uh, or sustainability people, whatever. Even from this whole job argument it's about jobs, about the working class, I mean, it's it's not. I mean, creating something that's supporting an oil industry is not about fucking jobs. You know, it's it's not about the working class. Like the working class is fucking exploited constantly by you know, and and they're they're still precarious. Like they're still precarious. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. Yeah, I think that that once you get into the nitty gritty of like the economics of it, it just shows you how bullshit that working class narrative really is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's such a shallow narrative that doesn't have that kind of broad, you know, that doesn't have the kind of broad based popular support that the media claims that it does. Yeah. Um, so what the fuck, and, right? You like, know, it's, <laughs> it's just part of creating that false dichotomy again. Right. Yeah. Which is really crucial for them to, you know, <laughs> sort of split people up. Uh, yeah. From a, political power point of view yeah and like break down solidarity yeah yeah exactly because again it's not it's like you know either jobs or you know renewable basis you know for your energy Mm -hmm. and uh and it's either one or the other but it's like no i mean (laughs) obviously that's a false dichotomy but uh yeah exactly and yeah, as Keegan, you know, has said, you can you can get into the into the statistics and the specifics and the numbers of all of this. And uh, people who are more expert than I at that kind of thing have yeah. done this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or start myth yeah. myth busting a bit. You know, <laughs> you know, we can we can insert uh, a study uh, or, or some such thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll link to the Nestoten website. That's actually really. Uh... That's a good idea. Okay. It's a great resource. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess like all this is kind of leading up to uh, this point that like building pipelines isn't just, it's just not an abstract economic investment, right? Like it irreducibly entails these material consequences that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. It's severely damaging for the environment. Um, and it subjects the people who live in that environment to industrial poisons and racialized violence. Right. So I think that on that basis, we can say that the position that Canada needs more pipelines, whatever justification is offered, is a fundamentally racist position at the level of material reality. Um, and I think the media needs to take a lot more 
responsibility when they're reporting on this stuff to actually draw these connections out um, because they just report on like the United We Roll convoy as though it's completely separate from the RCMP raiding the Innistoten camp and it's mm-hmm. you know what I mean like as though these are these abstract narratives that aren't directly connected when in yeah. fact they are um, and so I guess my final point uh, as well about the way that this whole kind of media story uh, is that is is it, it is to kind of wrap up this question about like the bizarre conspiracy theories, right? That like, mm. oh, we've signed this UN compact on immigration, and that means like whatever the I don't know, like we've lost our sovereignty, and like brown people are going to overrun like the pure white North, and like all this kind mm. of shit that you hear, right? Like when Andrew Shear spoke at the. <laughs> Uh, when he spoke at the United We Roll rally, um, some woman in the audience yelled out, like, when he was talking about pipelines, what about the UN? You know, like, so people uh, think that this is, like, an important part of the story. But I guess it once you start to look at these, like, more structural and material factors, um, it could tell you something. Like, those expressions, those kind of... Uh, how do you say it? Like those speech acts, those yeah. racist speech acts of like did the thinly veiled anti-Semitism about mm. globalism and and so on. Like they're expressions mm. of that deeper racial anxiety, and they find a home in the pro pipeline movement because of its foundational racism. Right? Like no one's gonna come out and say like we should have that land and we're gonna kill the indigenous people living on it and uh, we're gonna build this pipeline no matter what. They're not gonna say that, but they are going to. Say, give speech acts which reveal the racial anxiety and the racial animus which actually underlies this whole movement right so it's not that a, it's not that a movement about economics is being co-opted by these fantastical racism things it's that the these racism narratives are a bit like uh, uh, they're like spores of mold you know and they look for those dank, dark places where they can sink in their roots and like fester and grow up. And then they have these bizarre orange flowers, which are like, you know, the globalists are ruining our economy or whatever. But like, <laughs> you know, that like that, that's completely epiphenomenal. Uh, yeah, it's totally epiphenomenal with relation to the actual ra- constitutive racism of the pro pipeline movement, which is that kind of environmental it, racism. It's 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 symptomatic. It's symptomatic, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, it's this once again the classic, uh, if I can generalize with the term mainstream media problem, right? Yeah. Um, well, focusing on the symptom without recognizing it as a symptom of, you know. A more fundamental problem of a much deeper illness, right? Exactly, and yeah. you might as well put it in medical terms. Yeah, yeah. which is that, uh, like this, the racism of the settler colonial project. You know, like that's the sickness, and that's what's flaring up here, and it's going to keep flaring up as long as we like privilege these forms of resource extraction as the basis for our social organization. And without proper media coverage of this, you know, a lot of people, again, are led to look at the 
tree and miss the forest or yeah exactly however you, however you like yeah so i think that um talking about this stuff about like the racism of settler colonialism environmental racism um how that connects with this whole project of resource extraction pipeline expansion and so on mm. um it cuts to the heart of the deepest problems with certainly canadian society but you, you know, you could probably say the larger settler colonial project, so including America and so on. Yeah. Um, where, like, these states that we live in are just, like, they're premised on the destruction of these people and the, and the pillage of their lands, right? And their fundamental and- presuppositions of, uh, you know, I mean, in the context of the U.S., it's the the double original sin, if you like, of yeah. um, of the enslavement of Africans and mm-hmm. the colonization of of the people who are here. Yeah, and it's like, and who are here, and that's the yeah. point. Yeah, that's the point. And so it's like, yeah, exactly. Those these things are going to keep flaring up, you know, and they're so closely interconnected with the kind of big problems of today, like the environment and so on. Like it seems pretty obvious that the exact same capitalist settler colonial system is the thing which is destroying the environment, you know, like that we can't deal with those problems separately. Like you have to face them as a singular issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, <clears throat> tra- treating them as a, as a unit also draws attention to avoiding making the distinctions that you're cri- criticizing earlier, right? And, uh, and the distinction involves a certain form of uh, alienation, right? We understand ourselves to be alienated from nature. So we don't think about the consequences of not only the violence carried out on natural environments, but also uh, the people who depend on their environment, right? And I mean, some people could say as a result of this kind of idea of alienation that it's not affecting them, but we should not be thinking of those things in that way. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, well, the technological domination of the natural world, if you like, has literally Mm -hmm. led us to the point where it's not clear whether our, you know, species is going to be able to survive itself past the (laughs) 21st century. So, yeah. um, And, you know, that's perhaps a whole other, well, not not a whole other discussion, but it is a. You there's know, a lot more to unpack there for sure. There's, yeah, yeah, there's definitely, like, yeah, definitely. It's another it, path. But we ha- it's like we have to keep kind of circling around this stuff, you know, because we've kind of we constructed nature as like philosophically something that is out there, you know, and that's separate from yeah. us. We're over here, nature's out there, and therefore we could go and dominate and control nature. But when you set it up that way, you forget the way in which we are also nature. Like we are fully composed of, there's no separation, right? There's no distinction between us and the natural world. We are the natural world. And so if we treat it as an object, 
to be controlled and dominated you know like that chicken is going to come home to roost like we're dominating and destroying our own means of subsistence so the conditions are, for our continued existence yeah yeah exactly and uh it's like we just got to start getting serious about this stuff and like stop putting up these you know phantasmagoric narratives so that <laughs> yeah you know yeah. try and and that, that yeah go ahead go ahead yeah yeah i mean even when when we had recently just said you know that's a whole other topic but it's it's also kind of it what's interesting is that it, it it also does like fit into this, you know, it's like when we want to think about the violence that's being carried out against indigenous people, it's also a problem and uh, solidarity should be created between not just indigenous peoples, but us and indigenous, like we, uh, us and indigenous peoples, like uh, Canadians, um, and also, you know, people who are concerned about climate disaster. I mean, all of the narratives that are relevant need to be kind of working stitched together. together. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, Alex was saying before, um, with this idea of the false dichotomy, right? Like there, it's not the working class versus indigenous people. Like those people Mm -hmm. should be in solidarity against these forces that want to destroy the earth on which we all depend. You know, it's like, we need to start spinning narratives that, put us together in the same camp like yes there are real differences between settler communities and indigenous communities you know absolutely but um we all depend on the same land to live and we're gonna have to start treating it with a bit more love and like respect (laughs) i think that's the bottom line same water same air same sky Thank you.